to the finest crew in Starfleet. Engage. Watch your back, son. I'm Luke. I'm Captain Captain Janeway of the USS Voyager. Captain Captain Janeway of the USS Voyager. Welcome to The Greatest Generation. It's a Star Trek podcast by a couple of guys who are a little bit embarrassed to have a Star Trek podcast. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. Big episode today. One of the biggest. I read that this is the final appearance of the bun on Captain Janeway, uh, aside from flashbacks. I didn't know that. Yeah. RSVP bun. That's why it's a big episode. It's always scary to do a hairstyle change, oh, right? Absolutely. At least it is for me. Like I stuck with the butt cut probably three years longer than most people because I was afraid. <laughs> yeah. I was afraid to get a new haircut, and actors are made to do this all the time with their characters. If if their show goes for a, a length of time, I've been watching that show, The Americans. Oh yeah, starring an actor who is known for a wild hairstyle change from a previous show. Right, that was what Facility was all about. Oh yeah, but the male lead in that, uh huh, like has more hair hairstyle changes than any <laughs> male character in a TV show I can think of. Like every because ep- he's like a spy, right? So he's like impersonating people and like he's got like different identities and different personas and some sometimes it flashes back to what he looked like when he was like in his 20s yeah, in Soviet Russia. That's such a crutch though. Don't you wish you had that crutch? Like it's a, it's a disguise. That's why I buzzed my hair. Yeah. Like, yeah. I've never had hair bravery. I wish I was braver with hair. I I had a buddy in college was so hair brave that one time <laughs> just for fun he got a Bic razor and shaved male pattern baldness onto his head. That's amazing. Just wanted to see how it would be. I want to see how it would be, but I never want to go through with seeing how it is. <laughs> what What's the most dramatic hair change you've ever you've ever done? Like oh, going um, from what to what? I buzzed my hair uh, at some point when I was like we had like crazy hair day at at school. Mm-hmm. and elementary school and I and I convinced my parents to let me go for a buzz cut when I was in middle school but uh I looked like a person with execrable political beliefs <laughs> when I had a buzz cut so yeah. I never did it again I never really got out of this general medium boys length haircut like until yeah. the pandemic the pandemic was like the forced hair bravery that I craved <laughs> so I grew it down to my neck, basically, for yeah, the first yeah. time, and that was you exciting. You had, like, the Darth Vader helmet of hair for a minute. I did, yeah, tying it back and everything. And now yeah. I'm back up to where I used to have it, but that would have been a great excuse to cut it even further back, like, to You, to you buzz had it. a lustrous mane. It looked beautiful, Adam. You know what I do? I don't have hair bravery, and I have a great amount of skull fear. I don't know what's <laughs> under there. Yeah. I don't yeah. know if I want to know what's under there. I certainly do not. Uh, you know who has skull bravery, Adam, is Robert Picardo, a proud bald man on Star Trek Voyager. One of the greats. I thought maybe we could read his entry in the Star Trek Voyager show Bible. You today. know, the, sh- the show Bible always gives me strength when I'm, I'm feeling a little down or low mm-hmm. or weak. Yeah, yeah. You got to turn to the good book at a time like this. It's good to see you all in church. It's called the Bible. That's 
the way God wants it. I don't know why, dude. All these questions? Is a little blind faith too much to ask? Whenever you read the show Bible, I have my rod and my staff. <laughs> As I walk through the valley of Star Trek Voyager Season 3. Yeah, let's fill it up your cup, Adam, and turn <laughs> to page 13 here. He is listed in the show Bible as Doc Zimmerman. Hmm. Doc is not really a person, but a holographic figure, an emergency medical program devised by Starfleet. When the ship's doctor is unavailable or needs added assistance, one can call on the holographic physician. The hollow doctor appears as a human male and has been programmed with the most up-to-date medical knowledge. He is capable of treating any disease or injury. Doc has awareness that he is a hologram and is fully aware of his limitations. He had little personality when we first met him, except for some testiness and arrogance. Hmm. Subsequently, he may undergo some tinkering with his program in order to warm him up a bit, although not always with the desired results. One of his arcs is to get the crew to take him seriously and treat him with the respect he feels he deserves. Eventually, Cass will pair with him to become a medical student. Her intellectual abilities are equal to the task, and Janeway realizes that they may need a medically trained person who can operate somewhere besides Six Bay. The pairing of Cass and Zimmerman makes for an unusual and strangely warm-hearted relationship. Pretty much any relationship that Cass is in could be described that way. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that Doc Holliday is the only character who doesn't want to shove her into a broom closet, right? <laughs> yeah. She's uh, she's known for standing up in those. Um, so ended the reading, Adam. Wow. Uh, a, a piece of the show unto you, Ben. And also unto you. Uh, interesting, because um, the, the the doc is not... We, did, we have obviously already watched this episode, and the doc doesn't play a huge role in this app, but the, the big twist at the end uh, does involve the doc. Spoiler alert. So... Yeah, he kind of gets dock-napped mm-hmm. <laughs> at the very end. It's big fun. It's big fun and a, a momentous idea because I think it's the first time he's outside of the holodeck or six bay in a non-like alternate timeline situation, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, it makes me wonder uh, what other strange circumstances the crew of the Voyager will, fi- will find themselves in. I mean, early on in this episode where we really sending four down to this planet. But yeah. uh, that fifth one is a surprise. Let's see how we get there, though, Ben, as yeah. we discuss Star Trek Voyager Season 3, Episode 8, Future's End. Reverse course. Unless you've got something a little bigger in your torpedo tubes. I'm not turning around. <laughs> An episode that begins in flashback. Yeah. It's 1967. It's the groovy, hippie Earth time. The groovy hippie in question is trying to uh, use some sticks to bang on some pots and pans, playing along with the the cool tunes of the radio. Does Star Trek like hippies? Because all of their depictions are cartoonish and bad. Yeah, he definitely falls into a, a bit of a theme that we've seen over the years, and... It's kind of surprising, right? Like Star Trek being a show that was conceived of by a bunch of pinkos. Yeah. (laughs) Why the antipathy for the members of the hippie community? 
I mean, maybe they just feel emboldened to make fun of themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I can get with that. I mean, there were they were also like older than boomers, right? Like, yeah. Like Roddenberry was like silent generation, I want to say. Oh yeah. So yeah. I feel like there was just like maybe some generational antipathy for the hippies. Yeah. I did not recognize Ed Bagley Jr. here no. at all. Like until much later in the episode, you put together who that was. Yeah. But I was like, wow, <laughs> great casting on this burnout. <laughs> How'd they get him? <laughs> Everything about this cold open read to me as an X-Files cold open. You know, I feel oh, like yeah, we've gotten absolutely. this version of cold open on 40 different X-Files episodes. Absolutely. There's so much of the writing and pacing of this episode that feels like that X-File X-Files like movie like yeah. the the like era of late 90s political thriller slash like Independence Day style giant disaster movie like there's a lot of that kind of energy in this in this episode I really liked the X-Files movie but I feel like no one really saw it did you like it I liked both X-Files movies a lot oh shit there were two there were two X-Files movies. I'm thinking of Fight the Future. Like the, Fight the, the Future? The first one. That opens with that weird uh, vending machine filled with explosives. Yeah. And then several years later, they released another one that's just about Mulder and Scully being married and living like a very quiet life in like a rural house somewhere. God, X-Files used to be my very favorite show. And yeah. it's crazy that I... I was such a big fan, and then I got off that bus so fast yeah. that I don't even remember the existence of that second movie. It got almost no promotion. Like, I walked up to a movie theater, and I saw an X-Files movie. Is this just like like a re... Uh, you know, did they yeah. get like a print of Fight the Future? And it was like, no, it's a new movie. And the guy at the ticket counter was like, it's actually PG-13, so... I mean, <laughs> do you want to see the Garfield movie instead? <laughs> This this came out recently enough that I feel like I I remember buying tickets to Kill Bill for like a couple of like twelve year old kids or thirteen year old kids uh-huh. and then regretting it when I watched Kill Bill I was like ah, this is pretty actually pretty upsetting violence that sounds pretty edgy for you to do man and I I vouched for them too at the like on the way in like I happened to like get get a bucket of popcorn and they were like trying to get their tickets ripped and the and the clerk was giving them a hard time and i was like no no no, no. i'm their uncle they're with me <laughs> did you try to sit next to them at the movie and then after the movie's over you just tried to hang out too like just as friends how do you do fellow kids what yeah i was like hey so uh what are you guys up to now <laughs> you want to go hang out in the park <laughs> so yeah this is the UFO crash open of an X-Files episode and Ed Begley Jr. in hippie uh, hair and mustache up on a ridge looking down at it. And then we're into the opening theme music. You know, Ed Begley Jr. has a lot of photographs of himself <laughs> in this sort of hippie burlesque. Yeah, like, yeah. he could have brought like one of a thousand photographs into makeup <laughs> for but them to this use. This is what we're trying to nail? Okay, yeah. got it. <laughs> when we come back from theme, Janeway is uh, practicing her serve in, uh, in her office with a very advanced techno racket. 
The racket almost distracts you from how strange this ball is. I can't believe how tennis balls look in the 24th century. Yeah. Does it have like little suction cups on it or something? That's what it looks like to me. It looks like the COVID cell. (laughs) It looks viral. Ah, Scary. (laughs) Step six feet back. Yeah. She straight up smashes this tennis ball into Tuvok as he walks in. He catches it in the nuts. Sorry, Tuvok. And it takes him down. Simple physics, Captain. (laughs) He's there to just take a meeting like he's done a thousand times. A pretty chill update meeting segues right into red alert because there is a space butthole ahead. Mm -hmm. And what's weird about this space butthole is that it's immediately found to be artificially created. They don't know who's creating it, but it's uh, creating distortions. It's a distortion in the space-time continuum. And then uh, something's coming out, and uh, it's a a little ship. It's just a little guy. It is not Kelsey Grammer on this ship. (laughs) It can't always be Kelsey Grammer, you guys. Yeah, come on. And this thing, like, goes weapons hot right away. The Voyager's, like... Study, 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 scan, 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 and then it starts taking shots. And they're like, wait a second, this thing has a Federation ship and it's shooting at us? Like, yeah. we've been waiting for somebody to open a space butthole up and rescue us, and this guy comes through with a Federation signature, and he starts licking shots, and he really packs a wallop, too. And the ship's only six meters big, and that's even more of a wallop than you'd expect. What Harry Kim describes is really scary. He's like basically saying that the ship is coming apart on a molecular level. You don't like that. No. And they figure, like, Chicote suggests this, right? The the uh, deflector dish to disperse the pattern. And that, you know, causes the bangers to slow down for a second. If you're looking at the Haynes manual for a Federation starship, that's like one of the chapters <laughs> there is like when shit gets really bad. Yeah. You go to the main deflector dish as a weapon. Mm-hmm. Mr. Tuvok. Yeah. Fire. <laughs> so the dish idea works. It gets them a little bit of relief, at least enough relief to give them some time to take a FaceTime call from the captain of this thing. Yeah. And on the screen is Captain Braxton, who identifies himself as the captain of a Federation time ship. And he's like, I don't have a lot of time. <laughs> To tell you what I'm doing here, (laughs) but the bullet points are your ship is the cause of the destruction of Earth's solar system. I need to destroy you. You just got to lay back and let me do this. Sorry. And he kills the call. There's this moment between Janeway and Chakotay that is insane to me because Janeway is like, I'm going to need more evidence for this. And Chakotay, (laughs) right on the heels of her saying that, is like, but what if he's telling the truth? (laughs) <laughs> Shut the fuck up, Chicote. I won't sacrifice this ship and crew based on a 10-second conversation. There's coffee in that proof. Janeway didn't want to heave to and be boarded a couple episodes ago. You think she's just going to allow her ship to be destroyed by this guy? I think Chicote, we've established now, trying everything he can think of to not become captain of this ship. Yeah, he's looking and for he's a way out. Doing, he's doing the math. If the ship is destroyed and with all hands, like, that is uh, pretty definitive. I won't have to do that. So, like, two boxers simultaneously knocking each other out in the ring. Both of these ships shoot at each other, cripple each other, and then get pulled into this time rift. Yeah, they uh, come out the other side, like, KO'd on the floor, right? Everybody's passed out. Yeah. 
the thing about time buttholes is like you kind of idealize them for so long until you finally experience it. And then you're like, yeah, I mean, that was cool, but like probably shouldn't do this all the time. Yeah. It's just like, that's a lot of prep. You know, and with that prep comes pressure. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like New Year's Eve parties have to be the most amazing. Right. And like that's kind of like sets them up for failure in a way. And oftentimes that kind of pressure can lead to great disappointment. Yeah. And, it, you know, unique discomfort for one of the parties uh, the next day, <laughs> which is what happens to Voyager. They get a sense of uh, the fact that they're in Earth orbit, but the year is 1996. You probably recognized uh, the radio station stuff playing here in 1996. You're either rad or you're not. I'm pretty sure I heard Machine Bolt and El Farto uh-huh. uh, <laughs> doing the morning drive. What's confusing is the time ship is nowhere to be found. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not in orbit anyway. It, it looks like it crashed somewhere in L.A., so Janeway's like, might as well send a Dustbuster Club down there to find this thing. Yeah. With me as its leader. And so it's her, Chakotay, Tuvok, and Paris heading down to L.A. <laughs> this scene of L.A., Ben, is like what your grandparents think L.A. is without ever having been there. <laughs> it is every kind of L.A. person yeah. in one block. Yeah, they they beam down to, like, Venice, basically, and there's a bit about, like, oh, we could have left our Starfleet uniforms on. Nobody would have noticed. We got to break down the costume choices for all four of our characters here. We got Chakotay dressed like a detective on Miami Vice. A fiend for mojitos. We've got Janeway dressed as like a small town realtor. I will sell this house today. Paris, I don't even know what he's dressed like. He looks like a guy who's on his way to a a jam band concert. Am I making any sense here? He's dressed the same way that like a unspeaking role for like a criminal gang that's operating off of Santa Monica Pier (laughs) on a on a shipping trawler yeah uh, would be dressed in Baywatch Tuvok's like the only one who looks like he belongs in LA in 1996 come on take off your shirt and risk dermal dysplasia no thank you he's got kind of like a like an olive drab almost fatigue like thing but then he's got like a duster underneath the outer jacket of that yeah that's, that's purple yeah He looks great. He does. And then like a head wrap to cover the ears. It's a little tragic for the camera department here that things are so wild visually that unless you're really paying attention to it, you don't notice the one minute tracking shot that occurs here that is like super complex with a ton of dialogue and a ton of interactions with extras. Extras crossing in front of the camera, in front of the characters, like barging between characters. It's really Um, fun. Yeah, yeah. And like almost never in Star Trek, even in Star Trek 4, do we get this many extras in a shot. It's nuts. (laughs) It's so much. (laughs) It's really remarkable. And it's great. Like they're talking about how are we going to find this subspace transmitter they're kind of tripping off of how how weird everything is and uh enjoying the feeling of being on earth in a weird time period it's weird how like tuvok's gotta wear the headband of a vulcan on past earth but chakotay can wear his face tattoo openly and at the same time be super judgy about other people's appearance (laughs) 
there was a, some weird shit about that, right? Like yeah. looking at people's getups and being like, huh, some strange species alive here. I think sometimes Chakotay's a little bit of a catch-all for the writer's voice because as a character, I think there's less detail to him and his feelings about things. Yeah. He's a little unknowable outside of his, his spirituality. That's sort of the tragedy of the character, because like, it seems like they spent a lot of time and effort on trying to get to know him through that fraudulent consultant. Mm-hmm. And it's a shame, because he, like, he, does, uh, he does sort of turn into a cipher some of the time. It's got to feel so good to be an actor on a show that primarily does soundstage stuff to yeah. get some location work like this, where you get to be outside... Yeah. And that warm L.A. sun. like Paris is, is the one, like, giving voice to that, right? Yeah. He's like, let me, uh, you know, sun's out, gun's out. Like, this He this can't wait to rules. take off his shirt. <laughs> B-Dunk's looking pretty jacked here, too. You think about the fact that he just came off directing his first episode, but he was also making sure to hit the gym because yeah. he knew this was coming up. This really does feel like an episode of Baywatch to watch it. And I think that's probably because the episodes of Baywatch that we've watched for the hit bonus podcast, The Santa Monica Mountains. The the bikinis are definitely cut the same. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. She does have your legs. So we cut away from the Venice Beach after uh, Captain Janeway and Tuvok find a homeless guy that is the locus of subspace... Uh, technology, which shouldn't shouldn't exist on Earth in this time period. And we cut up to the Griffith Observatory, which is, uh, you know, we get a, a panning shot to establish the observatory and then a long pan through a very nerdy office with lots of, like, monster movie posters and action figures and, you know, photos of the moon landing and stuff. And this is the SETI office that the Sarah Silverman character works in. What a great place to work, if that's your gig. (laughs) Imagine, like, working at the Griffith Park Observatory, like one of the most spectacular vistas in Los Angeles. What a view of downtown Los Angeles. In an unlit, like, windowless room. In the Fox Mulder office. (laughs) Like, this is another quality of this episode that reads so much like X-Files. Yeah, it really does. So she gets the classic sci-fi movie SETI signal of we've picked something up from outer space. She punches it up on the computer and she gets like orbital information for where the source of this is coming from. Doesn't seem that far away. Yeah. Like you don't have to know how this tech works to get visually what's happening here. No, it's uh, it's pretty clear. So we cut to Ed Bagley Jr., in his high-rise office, who's got some real Chris Brenner vibes. I'm Chris Brenner. Brenner Information Systems. You know, interface, operations, net access, channel 90. That Chris Brenner. (laughs) And he does not seem like he will be voted anyone's best boss they've ever had, based on his behavior toward his employees. Yeah, he's uh, having a a high-level meeting with the head of a computer chip manufacturer and really stomping this guy's nuts over the quality of the computer chips that are being delivered. He is really pissed off, and uh, that is just not a great time for his uh, 
personal assistant to break into the meeting with a phone call from an urgent source. That source being Sarah Silverman's character, who's like, hey, Ed Bagley, (laughs) you know that gamma surge you've been telling me to search for? (laughs) Well, listen to this. And he's like, what the hell is this? And she says, well, you might not get it, but your kids are going to think it's really great. (laughs) This is a really fun bit of business for Ed Bagley Jr., who on the phone to Sarah Silverman's character is like, cool, great, don't tell anyone because it's probably nothing. And then as soon as the phone calls over, turns totally arch and like (laughs) talks to his henchmen like, you may have to kill a girl. (laughs) so get ready I have never hung up the phone and then like scowled and walked across the room and like the way he like it's like man if you're acting like that when you get off a phone call that you've just asked somebody to lie yeah (laughs) you know you're the bad guy yeah he reveals a tattoo on the inside of his left forearm that I couldn't help but cop yeah I don't know what it means exactly at this point point in time but the camera sure loves it in addition to having formerly been a hippie he was also like a black ops yeah special forces soldier or something right now living uh, the lavish lifestyle of an executive in an izod shirt <laughs> just like all of our best and brightest mm-hmm. this yeah. is a fun bit of character building for rain robinson sarah silverman's character because right after getting off the phone after being told We're, to just leave it. Yeah. Leave it. No. Rain. No. She's like, I'm going to send the message anyway. Like, yeah. I'm going to start reaching out to folks. And the first message she sends is to the source. She sends the SETI greeting. Greetings from the people of Earth. Shall I respond, sir? Absolutely not. And this pops up on the view screen up on Voyager that... Uh, that Ensign Kim has been left in charge of. Uh, and we get the, like, welcome to Earth illustration of uh, of naked people. <laughs> it's just a clip of Will Smith punching an ID4 alien over and over again. <laughs> uh, I thought it was interesting that BLT was on the bridge at Kim's station, but Kim was left in command. Yeah, it's sort of a uh, a volleyball in gym class kind of situation where like someone gets a serve and then side out and rotate <laughs> and and when when Kim gets the big chair BLT gets to serve <laughs> yeah she seems cool with the fact that somebody who is jun- her junior as an officer is giving her commands yeah i wonder if that's going to come around to bite them mm. what is most certainly biting them in this scene is that their transporters don't work and they've got yeah. four people on past earth running around and kind of a difficult way to ever bring them back if they get into an emergency situation. Yeah, the the time butthole has had some negative effects on their systems that uh, that are going to take a couple of days to get fixed. So that first beam down worked just fine, but anything after that is going to be at a high cost and they would have to go in super close and potentially reveal the Voyager to the planet. You're not going to feel normal after a time butthole experience for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. That's yeah. totally normal. There is some aftercare that I would highly recommend. <laughs> Coffee black. 
it yourself. I'm trying to help you see this as an opportunity to grow. Make it yourself. Down on Earth, uh, this information is relayed to Janeway, Chakotay, Tuvok, and Paris, who are like being super not chill about the fact that they're tailing this homeless guy. (laughs) And also not the least bit nervous about how difficult it would be to retrieve them if something went wrong. Like, I thought this would have been a great opportunity for there to feel some kind of fear about being stranded on what is really an alien planet to them with, with Miriam dangers. Like, there's there's an observance of their lack of transporter tech here, but I really think you could have ratcheted up the tension for it. Yeah, I agree. So they decide to split up, uh, classic horror movie mistake. <laughs> and they immediately start having sex. Yeah. Another horror film mistake. The killer is definitely going to get you, Janeway <laughs> and Chakotay. If you're sneaking <laughs> off into the bushes to knock boots... Classic. Do what you have to do. Tuvok and Paris are not going to be able to beam up to Griffith Park because of this transporter issue. So she said, by any means necessary, find your way up there. Yeah, this is real (laughs) license to kill stuff. It is. And uh, Janeway and Tuvok, like, continue to tail the homeless guy who is uh, taping up uh, handmade cardboard signs uh, that don't say flip homes will train and then just a telephone number. We buy houses. (laughs) They say the end is near, the end of the world is coming, the end of the future, and etc. Can I ask you a question about your neighborhood without you giving away exactly where you live? (laughs) In my neighborhood, there are so many lost bird signs. Do you have a lot of lost bird signs in your neighborhood? Like lost cockatiel. No, I have seen lost bird signs in Los Angeles, but I don't see lots of them. It's like almost all lost Chihuahua signs in my neighborhood. I I wonder if you could deign which neighborhoods we live in based on the (laughs) lost animals from there. Because there's a fair amount of lost Chihuahua action in in my neighborhood, as as most L.A. neighborhoods would have. But so many birds. Yeah. Our friend uh, Jesse Thorne and his wife Teresa, when we first moved here had to like explain to me that when you see a chihuahua walking around on the street, it's usually not lost, but Mm -hmm. just a chihuahua that's allowed to do that. Not all chihuahuas who wander are lost. Like so much of my time early in LA was spent like trying to convince a chihuahua to come over and hang out with me while I like look for a tag or like call somebody or (laughs) or find its owner. It's like a total waste of time, a hundred times out of a hundred. One of my Miriam fears about having a puppy right now is her somehow getting loose and just going home with the first person she finds because she's that kind of dog. Like, (laughs) (laughs) She's going to find her Ben somewhere and then that's going to be it. Yeah, that'll that'll be that. Yeah. We haven't talked about Chakotay's hair yet. I think we should highlight his Caesar cut. He's uh, he's really clooneyed his hair up for this episode in a way that just, oh, gave me the warm and 90s fuzzies. I mean, this was the haircut that I wanted to have but was too fearful to get at the time. Yeah. Like, oh, this it, was it. Well, I don't even, like, I don't think my hair does Caesar. I think my hair, like, at that length just doesn't lie like that. But, like, God, this was the men's haircut to have in 1996. Yeah, I mean, uh, render unto Caesar the things that are gelled forward. 
<laughs> I guess. I was afraid of the gel aspect of it because everyone oh, yeah. I knew in high school who had Caesar cuts, it was also very wet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's hard to find a, a gel that doesn't make you look drippy. Yeah. That's a paradox, my dear. So they confront this homeless guy and turns out he is the captain of the timeship. Yeah, and he's been on Earth for 30 years. This is a great revelation about the dangers of time buttholes and what happened to them after they slipped through, right? Like, yeah. it just because you go through at the same time doesn't mean you end up in the same place. This is like exactly what happened to Gabrielle and Michael Burnham. Yeah. And uh, this blew my mind because I was like, I had him pegged as having been the hippie because... Mm-hmm. In that early shot, I did not make Ed Begley Jr. as the hippie. So right. I was like, oh, the hippie found the time ship or something. Yeah. No, this isn't the hippie that found the time ship. This is the captain of the time ship, the hippie's Begley Jr., <laughs> who stole the time ship from him. This episode has some of the great makeup that we've seen in all of Star Trek Voyager, I think both in the hippie and in the homeless man, really great stuff. It's that trope, like, you know, 12 Monkeys uses this a little bit, like the time traveler treated as a madman, Mm -hmm. but is actually telling the truth, but also is like, he's like been isolated and cut off from society long enough that he is like authentically fucked up and like rambly and ranty, so... He gives that that madman energy, despite the fact that like what he's explaining is the time paradox of his ship having gone to fight Voyager, brought everybody back here to 1996, and then letting that ship fall in the hands of Ed Bakley Jr. and thereby like sowing the seeds of the disaster that he set out to prevent. It's one of the things I think about a lot when I see the people on the margins who are unhoused and unwell, like whether or not you enter into that situation with great mental health, the idea of spending years in a situation where you are more or less ignored has got to make you feel a kind of crazy. No, and it's like one of the primary arguments for the housing first approach to Mm -hmm. dealing with homelessness is like, there's so many like programs that are like, well, let's assess the need and then like we'll get them into, you know, the track and eventually connect them with a job, in mm-hmm. which case they'll be able to pay for blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, just like get them stable, get them safe, get a roof over their head, get a meal in their belly. Like that should be the first thing. Like everybody needs a house. It's a fucking human right. Yeah, it's crazy to look back and see like how different it was in 1996 in terms of those programs. Like very different. Disappointing compared to today. We've come so far. (laughs) This moment for Braxton and the actor who plays him, I think is why you take this role because he has got real Joe Pesci and JFK energy when he explains the nature of the disaster Mm -hmm. that is to befall them. Great, great scene here that he just takes over. He does a really nice job. And the truth of the matter that we get from this scene is that someone stole the time ship and caused the accident in the future. And Braxton knows that it's Ed Bagley Jr.'s fault. And before they can get much further into this conversation, some fucking cops pull up and give Braxton a real hard time about being out there and hanging up his signs. You stay right where you are. 
quasi-Cardassian totalitarian. But uh, you can't shove a cop, Braxton. You, <laughs> you really can't do that, man, because he yeah. does a shove and run, and uh, yeah. that gives Janeway and Chakotay the distraction they need to get the fuck out of there. Now listen, if I was a defense attorney, I would be asking questions like, why is L- LAPD hassling this guy about hanging up signs in Santa Monica, which is not part of their jurisdiction? Mm. Like, why are they, why are oh, they so cornering be, him you'd in? be moving on a technicality. Yeah, but that's not the direction this episode goes. It does not cur- turn into a courtroom drama about the civil rights of the unhoused. I bet you really ached for that kind of pivot, huh? <laughs> it did. Uh, instead, uh, Chicote and Janeway now have his communicator, and uh, and he is in the wind. And we cut up to uh, Ed Begley Jr.'s office. Yeah, he's working in the Cronower X building, <laughs> which I found to be a real failure of typography there. As a logo, <laughs> as a name, it looks 1996, 97-y. As- as that, yeah. but it's also yeah. illegible for that reason, I thought. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Once I saw Cronower X, it was all I saw. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a Cronower, not a shower, by the way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which means you have to go back in time to see my erection. <laughs> <laughs> time travel. Ed Begley Jr. is very, very upset, you know. Billionaires have such a hard time finding good help, and uh, they just spend so much time creating jobs. It's very stressful. Yeah, yeah, it's very stressful. And and he's he created a job for Sarah Silverman, who went and blabbed to somebody that she knew at Caltech, who told somebody at JPL, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, now the word is kind of out. About and they this. told two people, <laughs> and they told two people, and they tell two friends, and they tell their friends, and so on. And so on, and so on. This is where the relationship between Ed Bagley Jr. and his hench mm-hmm. becomes super clear and dark. Yeah, Dunbar the, the henchman. I love this moment. Mm-hmm. You may have to use the weapon, he says. The weapon is uh, apparently already in Dunbar's coat because he, he, like, <laughs> yeah. he like sticks his hand inside and like nods like, yeah, I got it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's always on my person. Where right, else would it yeah. be? Do you think he got like a custom like shoulder holster made for the weapon? Because it doesn't, it's not the same shape as like a, as like a Glock. I bet it's that nice bridal leather, you know, with some, with some very satisfying buttons. If I didn't hate guns so much, I would want to wear one. They look great. Yeah. Really looks good. Maybe I could like get one that's just for like a wallet or something. A wallet holster. Yeah. The last thing you want to be if you're Ed Bagley Jr. is on the phone fixing this fucking mess that Sarah Silverman yeah. made. I had a lot of respect also in this scene for the acting Ed Begley does while doing like a pretty capable game of pinball. <laughs> yeah. Like he, yeah. He, he doesn't he does not let that ball fall between the paddles while while he's acting. I wonder how many takes that took. I don't know. I never last long in, in pinball. The first ball is always a disaster for yeah. me. Like it takes me a couple of reps to get up too. Yeah. I know. It sucks. It's hard. You know what else is hard, Adam, is finding parking up at the Griffith Park Observatory, but not for Paris and Tuvok. No. They get the Pope spot right out front. Yeah. (laughs) Really nice parking. I mean, they don't know about uh, red curbs. The red zone has always been for loading and unloading. There's 
never stopping in a white zone. So uh, presumably this thing is going to get towed, but uh, <laughs> they went to a dealership and uh, asked to test drive a blue pickup truck and without giving the dealership like a credit card or a driver's license or any form of collateral, <laughs> they were given this truck. You really filled in the blanks here, Ben, in a way that I did not. I had it in my head that they just stole a truck and were going to return it to a dealership after because that's the only logical sense it made to a Tom Paris who has a pseudo grasp of what Earth is like in 1996 or 97. I mean, your story makes a thousand times more sense than mine, but... What I wanted more than anything was to see that scene. I could have spent 20 minutes watching Paris and Tuvok try to get this truck off of a car dealership's lot. (laughs) You could have had an entire episode just about that. Yeah. Give us a third episode and make the middle episode just at the car dealership. (laughs) I've got to get that platinum, get that robe enlargement. (laughs) A good time so often has a downside doesn't it? Especially when it comes to stuff that you put in your birdie. We've all been hungover before. I mean, many of us have, I guess. Or we've had too much jazz in our gummy. And that sucks, right? Because you don't think about the time after the good time that you've been trying to have a good time. That's why I like Lumi Labs so much. It's the predictability. Through painstaking trial and error, I have found my perfect dose. It's what I can depend on, and I could use a little more chill, a little help getting into a creative headspace, and I don't need to have too much fun doing whatever it is I need to be doing. And I'm so glad that Microdose is available nationwide. That means just about anyone can try it. To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com and use the code SCARVES to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Again, that's microdose.com and the code is SCARVES. You might have heard us talk about Squarespace before and you're thinking, what do I need a website for? I already have a bunch of profiles across the different social medias. But isn't it time you had a place online that wasn't owned by a social media company? How about you take control of your online identity with a website of your own? For that, there's Squarespace. With Squarespace, you can buy a URL and build a customized website with your name and not a giant social media company's name with your name attached and a bunch of numbers at the end. With Squarespace, you can have a place on the internet personalized to your aesthetic that lets you tell people about who you are instead of an algorithm. And the best part is, you don't have to be an experienced designer or a web page creator to make something great because Squarespace is always there for you with their award-winning 24 by 7 customer support. Don't settle for being another company's product. Be your own product with a website that's all you with Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code SCARVES to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com. The code is SCARVES. Think it. Dream it. Make it with Squarespace. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. 
The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org slash newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. I've got to get that Latin Are you planning a heist? Gold. So they get into Rain's office and they're poking around her stuff. Paris not being super tactical about this. He's not really trying to cover his tracks. Might I remind you of the <laughs> butterfly effect? Yeah, that document being over there on the desk could have unimaginable ripples in our timeline. <laughs> yeah, this is some great odd couple shit, though. Uh, did you notice the Talosian action figure on her desk? Oh, Anna? yeah. That's fun. That's a nice little wink. Wink yeah. and a finger gun. Yeah. Uh, the Botany Bay uh, spaceship model also in this office. Yeah. This girl's a nerd. <laughs> She's one of us. Yeah. Just a scant... 20 years from this scene, she could have been a friend of DeSoto. I know. One of the things they figure out in this scene is that Voyager is being tracked, even though they shouldn't have the ability to do that with this year's technology. Yeah. They don't know what warp emissions are, and yet this this equipment is configured to look for them. That's the moment where manic pixie nerd girl enters, and she is pissed. <laughs> At these trespassers, yeah. as anyone would be. You're gonna wish you never fucking got up this morning, asshole. Uh, I'm sorry. I think we're a little lost. Their story is they were uh, separated from their tour group, which is clearly an idea they came up with based on what happened to Kess last episode. Right. And uh, they're talking to her about how cool they think her lab is. Uh, Paris calls it groovy, missing some, like, <laughs> contemporary lingo by a couple of decades what was the lingo in 96 or 97 like i want to say that that he would have been better off with yeah it's pretty tight yeah no i think tight would have been it yeah the point being paris is fucking blowing it with rain and they should have sent kim (laughs) it's funny whenever you see someone rikering and not able to pull it off Mm -hmm. like paris does his best version of that but it's not that paris doesn't have charisma it's that he has a different kind of charisma than Riker, right and he doesn't need to be Riker because whatever his vibe is is sufficient enough to impress rain robinson enough to make a pass at him she tries to see you next tuesday on him yeah (laughs) she uh she runs the planetarium show on tuesdays and invites them to come back with pals you get in that dark room looking up at the stars and some uh, Pink Floyd playing. 
Sarah Silverman doing bits? Some lasers and smoke? Are you telling me you're not going to go to that next Tuesday? Paris? Come on, man. You're blowing it. Be pretty exciting. Yeah. So Paris and Tuvok are on their way out after having sabotaged her computer. And Sarah Silverman takes great umbrage with this as she runs out after them. She's like, do you think I wasn't going to notice the wooden shoe that you threw at my computer screen? And what is that thing in your pants? She starts in on them about the computer thing, and she's like, hey, wait a second. Why, how can you park here? <laughs> do you guys just not care about parking tickets or what? <laughs> this is like a $200 ticket. Do you not realize that? <laughs> You're lucky you didn't get fucking towed. Yeah. Um, What's crazy is the is both the truck and the parking ticket under the windshield wiper get vaporized by Ed Bigley <laughs> Jr.'s hench. So it's not yeah. a problem anymore. Dunbar starts licking shots at them with the weapon. Yeah. And uh, Tuvok starts firing back it's um phaser fight at the okay planetarium i love a roll and shoot and you get this with tuvok yeah pretty good action sequence yeah they managed to return fire long enough to jump into the back of rain robinson's libyan bus from back to the future it does look like the same bus my god tuvok i don't know how but they found us <laughs> hey what's this briefcase full of uranium back here i don't know if you noticed but tuvok or his stunt man and i'm po- i'm positive it's the stunt double for tim russ on the jump absolutely bashes his thigh on the van opening here on oh, the yeah. dive in in a way that like couldn't possibly not leave a giant bruise it looks like it hurts so bad. Hopefully that, that person's okay. Yeah. My dad used to have the uh, the VW bus. Was it blue like the Libyan bus from Back to the Future? It was white. Yeah. Uh, it was like primer white. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Uh, we called it the bump mobile because it was like, it was bouncy <laughs> when I was a kid. That's great. Did your dad also leave takeout food in the back for like two weeks? Yeah, that was like two cars from then. Uh-huh. Uh, the bump mo- the bump mobile was destroyed by Pinkertons when he was involved in a labor action in San Francisco who poured sugar in the gas tank. God, classic Pinkertons. Yeah, fucking assholes. Back on Voyager, Kim is giving us an update about what's going on on the ship. Primarily is that he's delegated the task of watching TV to Neelix and Kess. <laughs> yeah. Neelix and Kess are going to start a television recap podcast. This is such a stupid idea. No Pathetic. One, yeah. What fucking losers would do that? Yeah, no one's going to listen to that. Get out of here. Good luck freaks. finding an audience. <laughs> Don't quit your day job, Neelix and Kess. Bad idea. Neelix tin mans the word soap opera. <laughs> In a very fun way. It's a form of entertainment called a soap opera. Tin Man. And they get really caught up in the stories. Mm-hmm. Neelix maybe more so than Casp. And uh, and they haven't like come up with the innovation of watching this from a couch. They're watching this from a standing position, yeah. which uh, feels very like uh, we're very new to this, but we like it kind of decision. Every time we're up on Voyager and we see Earth in the background of a composition... It mm-hmm. made me wonder how other people were feeling on the ship about being back on Earth and not being permitted to go down there and how much they knew about where and when they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Like, I could have really gone for a lower decks sea story here. Yeah, they didn't have, like, a bosun's whistle and the captain announcing to the crew, here's what the situation is. Right. And tonally, I think that would have taken things in a more serious direction than they were going for here. Like, the vibe is fun, this episode. There are a lot of things that they really nail about this episode, Adam. Uh, The next scene is Chakotay and Janeway breaking into the office of uh of starling the ed Bakley jr character one thing they did not nail was the way the buildings look outside the windows did you notice this yeah they were like totally at the wrong angle for the windows yep really bad <laughs> yeah not looking great Janeway uh, sits at Ed Bagley Jr.'s computer and starts clicking around on the tax documents and Chakotay is like whoa 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 that is, uh, <laughs> I don't think you're going to find what you're looking for in that folder. Looks like a series of pictographs. How about, uh, how about this other folder over here? But what's weird is, is like, Janeway uses her tricorder and she's like, Chakotay, there is far more data inside the tax documents folder than any other folder. Like, yeah. by a massive degree, there's like gigabytes and gigabytes in the tax folder. And it's 1996. Like, the biggest hard drive available to consumers is, like, 512 megabytes max. So unless he's got, like, a SCSI raid somewhere in the building, uh, I think that this is what we're looking for. And Chakotay's like, you don't understand, Janeway. I am telling you. Turn back now. You remember those uh, zip disk, like, file folder <laughs> containers next to the next to the monitor? Yeah. There's, like, 12 zip disks in there, all of them labeled tax documents, and a zip drive there. <laughs> it's crazy how shitty the computer looks and how real that computer looks, too. Totally. That's just what it was. Down on the streets of Los Angeles... The uh, the bump mobile is cruising along with Tuvok and Paris in the front seats, and a very angry Rain Robinson in the back. She's uh, threatening to start yelling and start drawing attention to them. And they've told her that they are secret agents. That they're uh, the thing that she detected in orbit is a Soviet spy satellite. And she's like, the Soviets aren't even around anymore. And uh, it, their their story is pretty thin. Yeah, wait until uh, 2016, guys. (laughs) 30% of the people you pitch something like that to will believe it immediately. (laughs) This is another moment in the episode that could have taken a turn into the intense. Much like the moment where we learn that they can't use transporters on the Voyager, we learn in this scene that the communicators were damaged. And this feels a lot like what it was like to get lost before cell phones and and try to meet up with someone. Right. Uh, Like, it should feel scary, but it doesn't really. Yeah, like how they don't know like where they're going, how to how to get around. They don't have any way to get in contact with the ship. Like, how the fuck are they going to get out of this? And why the hell is Paris driving? (laughs) <laughs> like, I love that Paris relishes the opportunity to drive as a car nerd we know him to be. Yeah. It'd be funny if he got something wrong, though, that right, he assumed right. was the way to do things. I always think about, like, what if you actually drove the way you drive in Grand Theft Auto? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, his all his driving reps are on the holodeck, so. <laughs> yeah. That would have been great. In the office of bullshit Chris Brenner, 
they find schematics for the time ship and they realize that the time ship is in fact here. And <laughs> it is in this in this seed that Janeway gives voice to something that I was kind of feeling in this episode also just like time travel like yeah why whatever like it it seems fun but fuck time travel. <laughs> It's weird. They they look through the window and the time ship is involved in this, in some kind of like focus group situation, being asked a bunch <laughs> of questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, turn the knob to the left <laughs> if you think Greatest Generation is bad, and turn the knob to the right if you think the Greatest Generation sucks. They figure out that Ed Bagley Jr. has been prepping this time ship for launch. It's not just that he's been milking the ship for all of these inventions that he brings to market. It's that he's going to actually fly this thing. Yeah. This was such a popular idea in the 90s. The, like, aliens came to Earth and all technology that has been developed in the last couple of decades is owing to us, you know, monetizing that. Like, it's the premise of Men in Black. It's the premise of so many things. It's because it's so believable, right? You telling me someone could just think of Velcro? (laughs) Yeah, so they realize that the the launch of this ship will cause this disaster that Braxton has been warning them about. So if they can get a hold of the time ship, they could they could potentially ward off disaster. Yeah, but guess what? Someone's about to stop them because enter Ed Bagley Jr. and his henchmen. Welcome to the 20th century. Some weird Dutch angles in this scene. Yeah. Like the only thing I could think of for the for why they went with these weird Dutch angles and the confrontation between Starling and Janeway and Jacote is that the angles of the backdrops outside the windows were so bad that the Dutch angles sort of like obscure that. That's interesting. I really like that theory. Like to see it in a squared off composition would be to betray it. And so you yeah. gotta Dutch it. Yeah. I like that idea. And the Dutch angle, like, if you don't know, is just when, when the camera, you set, you usually set up the camera where the bottom of the frame is parallel to the floor, and a Dutch angle is just where it's it's shot on a, a funky angle. It's also framed as if the camera are a lot taller, because uh, you're using a Dutch cameraman mm-hmm. who's very yeah. tall and stoic. <laughs> yeah. Not a great sense of humor on that cameraman. No. It's a a very notable weird choice in this episode in these scenes, but um, yeah, he's like, "I'm on to you. You're here to take the time ship, but you can't stop me. I have the weapon and Dunbar here to hold it." Janeway's like, "You may have the weapon, but I have started transferring your tax documents up to the Voyager," <laughs> and this Bigley. really sets Ed Bigley Jr. off. He, he takes the, the weapon from Dunbar and sticks it in his mouth and pulls the trigger until it goes click. <laughs> the data transfer is aborted quickly because he grabs Janeway's communicator and tells Harry that Janeway is toast unless uh, they cut it off. And so they don't get his whole database. And so up on the bridge, Harry and Bolana like have this little debate like, fuck, we got to get the captain and Chakotay out of there. But they said not to, like, come down into lower orbit because we'll betray the existence of the ship to these primitive past people. We can't risk that. And Kim decides to go ahead and do it. He decides to break the captain's orders and take the ship into very low orbit so that they can do this trans- this emergency transport. This is Jordy LaForge shit, isn't it? Like, the first time he's put in command, he separates the ship and he starts doing crazy <laughs> shit. 
Yeah. This is fun. Yeah. Ed Bagley Jr. is on his computer while this is going down, realizing how much of his tax documents have been stolen. And, and Janeway is like, listen, like we're doing this to save 29th century Earth. It's going to blow up if you do your plan. And he's, uh, you know, the kind of villain that doesn't care about being warned away from his evil plan. No. Janeway gets beamed out of there. Chakotay has to hit Dunbar with a chair to uh, to distract him. And then Chakotay gets beamed out of there. And then up on the bridge, Janeway, like, rapid fire, has a bunch of orders for the crew. Hell, maintain present altitude. Chakotay, see if you could disable the force field around that time ship. Balana, prepare to lock onto the time ship and beam it to Cargo Bay 2. Coffee black. And the the primary plan is let's get that time ship let's beam it into the shuttle bay and uh ed begley jr starts like counter hacking them and somehow is using the transporter beam as a downlink and is pulling voyager's own tax documents folder down onto his computer i love how this is revealed like ed begley jr might be a dumb in 1996, but he has access to all the tech from the 29th century, yeah. so it it superpowers him in yeah. a way that makes him a really formidable enemy. Yeah, it's like how Elon Musk is a dumb person, objectively, <laughs> and yet is the richest man walking the earth, <laughs> because he has access to capital, Adam. Right. I mean, the button on the episode, basically, is Ed Bigley Jr. calling to gloat about how weak their 24th century tech is in the face of his 29th century tech. Yeah. And, you know, among other things that we don't see in this moment, he takes the dock and beams the dock down to his office. Yeah. And we get, like, shaky cam footage of the Voyager over, over Los Angeles. Pretty grim ending. Seems like the Voyager is without a medical officer. They've revealed their presence to the evening news in L.A. Yeah. And Ed Begley Jr. has all of the cards. And Tuvok and Paris are stranded on Earth. I mean, things could be worse. They're stranded with Sarah Silverman in a camper van. Just go on without me, guys. That's what I'd say if I were Tom <laughs> Paris. Luke, if you got to leave someone behind... Yeah. If you have to sacrifice someone to this time don't, period. Don't shed a tear for me, guys. Yeah. This actually worked out pretty good for me. Did you like the episode, Ben? You know, I'm really easy to get along with most of the time. But I don't like bullets. I don't like friends. And I don't like you. I really like this episode. I think it's a, I think it's a really fun episode. Like, we were talking about, like, some of the ideas and tone tonal stuff that it borrows from other sci-fi of its era and that stuff would clang if it wasn't capably executed but Mm -hmm. it totally is yeah and it's capably executed within a very fun star trek context i really think that this episode owes a ton of its success to lessons learned in star trek 4 but um it, it really works for me as an episode, and I can't wait to watch part two. You know, a lot of times in two-parters, it's easy to reserve judgment until the second part. Yeah. This is one of those circumstances where I think we're both feeling right away that this is good and this is mm-hmm. fun without having yeah. to need to see the second part. Well, I think that like the test of a two-parter is, did the first part make you want to watch the second part? Yeah, yeah, and I, I definitely do. 
Oh, good. I also feel like, uh, you know, a lot of people think you can only get a good Ed Bagley performance in New York, mm. but uh, the Bagleys in L.A. I think are really good, <laughs> and I think this episode proves it. Uh, I have heard, actually, many people think that the Montreal Bagley <laughs> is the best. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you you get, you get Bagley in a period drama uh, uh-huh. shooting in Montreal. <laughs> I mean, that's just great stuff right there. That's solid as here. Yeah. <laughs> Adam, do you want to see if we have anything in the Priority One inbox? Oh, yeah. That satisfies like a Begley? That that satisfies like a pre-written joke like that? <laughs> yeah. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Need a supplemental income. Supplemental income. Supplemental. Supplemental. Yeah, it's extra. The interest alone could be enough to buy this ship. Adam, our first Priority One message is from Eric. It's to Ben and Adam. It goes like this. Hey, guys. Love the show. Thought I would give you some scarves. You have been making my commute a great way to chill out after a stressful year and a half. There have been some long days slash nights in the lab supporting COVID manufacturing as an employee of a pharmaceutical company. Shout out to FOD Kurt Onafre for introducing me to the pod. Wow. Thank you, Eric. Eric has admitted he works at the pharmaceutical company that makes COVID. What the fuck, Eric? Hey, Eric, get a wooden shoe, (laughs) throw it into the machine. I don't like COVID. Eric says a lot of nice things about the show, Ben, but uh, he hasn't yet heard the uh, the Bagley joke, and I'm just not <laughs> sure if that's going to drive him away forever. The, the tragedy of this is we'd been a year and a half into COVID when Eric sent this P1. Now almost two years into COVID is when he would have heard it, but he... He got to the Begley joke part of this episode and turned off the pod forever. Yeah. He'll never even know that this was the episode that his P1 was on. That's tragic. So sad. Ben, our second priority one message is from DK, and the message is for Sassy Belushi. The message goes like this. Can you believe it's almost been eight years when we met and kept finding fandoms we shared? Too embarrassed for Trek as a teen, but together... We found that Shrek love again. Thanks, Pandemic Media Binge. Sadly, Uh-oh. Pandemic Recreational Felicium beat us. As we prepare to quit it, I leave this message in a bottle. I, ho- I hope we're moving on together when it airs. Wow. Kind of a cryptic message toward the end from DK to Sassy Belushi. Do you know what Felicium means? I don't. I got a couple of uh, Jose Felicium records in my collection. Put those on from time to time. Uh-huh. I don't know what mean Felicium. It's a Star Trek vaccine. Oh, jeez. It's that shit in the... In the it's the lentils. <laughs> oh! <laughs> DK with a deep cut there. Yeah. No kidding. God. Um, nice work, DK. You really got one past my mind goalie there. Yeah, DK. If you're if you're upset about the pandemic, let me uh, let me recommend you bring your complaints to Eric. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Expend all your frustration onto Eric. Yeah. Clearly responsible for this whole situation. Yeah. 
Come on, Eric. Hey, you know what? Eric might have been the reason for the pandemic, but he did buy a Priority One message, so kind of evens itself out. Even money. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you'd like to unmask yourself as the villain behind a pandemic <laughs> or uh, promote a personal project or uh, send a message to a loved one, head to MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron and set yours up today. Hey, Adam. What's that, Ben? Did you find yourself a drunk Shimoda? Drunk Shimoda! I mean, you think you know what you're in for when you get an Ed Bagley Jr. on screen. And mm-hmm. I love his playing against type here this episode. Yeah. I find his gear for Arch is great. <laughs> it's speedy and good and believable. And uh, yeah. like every time he's on screen, I am just with it. In, yeah. a, in an episode that gives you a lot to distract... Like, I was totally locked in on his whole deal. And I think that speaks to the power of his performance. I really liked his character and I liked his work here. Uh, so I'm just going to use my Shimoda as a recognition of that. What about you? Mine's a little sillier than that. Uh, I agree that Ed, Ed Bakley Jr. is great in this episode. But my drunk Shimoda is a girl that is rollerblading on... Mm-hmm. Venice Beach in the uh, in the first scene where they first beam down, uh, she, she goes in between Chicote and Janeway in a way that is just like there is a certain way about people on Venice Beach. Venice Beach has decorum that is considerably looser than most public spaces, uh-huh. but. Girls on rollerblades do not force their way in between two people who are walking together like. <laughs> oh, maybe in your experience. It just really caught my attention how unhinged that was as an act. So uh, that that lady gets my Drunk Shimoda award for this episode. You told me a while back that you were a, a competent ice skater. Did you ever bring those skills to the roller variety of skate? I had rollerblades, and I remember being not as good at rollerblading. And I think the main reason is that the way you slow yourself down is so different on rollerblades than it is on ice skates because ice skates it's all about like turning your blades like uh-huh. more and more toward perpendicular to the direction you're traveling and if you do that with wheels you just fall on your ass yeah the way you stop on rollerblades is by hitting a parked car which is what <laughs> i did every time i tried to rollerblade <laughs> yeah exactly uh yeah so um i feel like i wasn't as good on rollerblades but um Still good at skating. Yeah. That's why cats love you. Objection noted. We'll do this without you. Well, Adam, uh, it's time to talk about the next episode of this show and how we will be doing the next episode of this show. Uh, for that, we go to gach.biz slash game, where we keep the game of buttholes, the will of the caretaker. Uh, the next episode is Future's End Part 2. Voyager must find a way to stop Starling before his attempted use of the time ship destroys Earth's solar system. I mean, not the solar system in 1996 or even the solar system in 2320 or wherever Voyager's from, right? Like, Do you have a good grasp of, at this moment in time, why Ed Bagley Jr.'s character would choose to fly the time ship instead of continuing to milk it? for inventions that make him rich and famous. Like, it seems like the moment where Janeway was like, 
by flying the ship, you risk killing billions of people. He'd be like, okay, cool. So I'll, I'll just be a trillionaire on earth for the rest of my life living in, in luxury. Like I can deal with that as a fallback option. The thing about a billionaire though, Adam, they always want to go to space, huh? They don't know when they have enough. Enough is, is not in their vocabulary. Yeah. I think that Part of that is hinted at in the in that first scene with him where he's like dissatisfied with the computer chip. It seems like maybe he's like hit the limit of how much of the time ship he's able to figure mm. out ways to commercialize. Yeah, that was unclear to me. You're required to learn as you play. Roll. We're on square 32. Just ahead, we have a Janeway square, which could delta flyer us all the way up to... The measure of a man square on 87. Wow. Uh, we could also potentially hit a Neelix's galley square, huh. which is the champagne toast square. I've got some champagne I could drink. Okay. That is a very headachey episode, though, toward the end. <laughs> yeah, it really is. All right, I'm going to roll this bone, see what we hit. All right. I have uh, sandwiched our runabout right in between those two. I rolled a three. Chula! Did I win? Hardly. We have landed on square 35, a regular old episode next week. I feel like I can pick up the spare at the end of next week's episode and get that one. I'm pretty good for a one. <laughs> oh, yeah, you really are. Yeah. Well, that was a really fun episode. Uh, really looking forward to next week. This show is... Uh, show that is produced by the great Wendy Pretty right here on Uxbridge Shibota. We're on the Maximum Fun Network. If you enjoy this podcast, maybe you'll enjoy some of the other shows on Maximum Fun, like The Greatest Discovery, for example. Oh, yeah. That's like the second best podcast on Maximum Fun. <laughs> the first best is Mabimba. <laughs> I'm not familiar. We also put bonus episodes in the uh, bonus feed at MaximumFun.org for all of our MaxFun members. If yeah. you'd like to support the production of this show, head to MaximumFun.org slash join and set up a monthly membership. Yeah, it really helps keep the show going and it, and it gets Wendy paid. Yeah. Gotta do that. You think she's working for free? Hell no. Hell With no. the guff po- that we give her week in and we week out? We poached her away from NPR. Yeah. We had to give her benefits and stuff. She's expecting a serious job here, all right? (laughs) Uh, You know who else is doing a seriously good job is Adam Ragusea. He's the person behind most of the great music you hear on the show, the music you're hearing right now, made by the great Dark Materia. But that theme music, the interstitial music, for the Greatest Generation Voyager and DS9 and the OG Greatest Generation. That's all his work, Adam Ragusea. That's all all cooked up by the goose, who not only cooks up music, he also cooks up food on his great YouTube program. Yeah, food and thinking about food. It's it's really, it's smart programming. Yeah, I really enjoy it. Yeah. We should thank the card daddy, Bill Tilly, who runs our social media, at Greatest Trek on Instagram and Twitter. Use the hashtag GreatestGen to talk about the show and find uh, find your community of Friends of DeSoto at DrunkShimoto.com if you're a Discord person, at Facebook if you're a Facebook person, at Reddit if you're a Reddit person. I haven't been to the Discord in a while. i got to go back there and do one of those impulse Q&A sessions that yeah. I those used to fun. do. Yeah. You really run in a classy operation over there on the Discord. Yeah, they do a good job. 
with that we'll be back at you next week with another great episode of star trek voyager and an episode of the greatest generation voyager where seriously we are like editing out things that we say about sarah silverman because we have such a huge crush on her i've never not had a crush on sarah silverman yeah this is her first acting role that's impossible yeah i don't believe it she was like the young. She was the youngest SNL cast member before Pete Davidson, wasn't she? She like hired an acting coach when she got cast in this because she didn't really feel like she knew how to act. Wow. I mean, she's almost uh, L.A. Bagel quality in this episode. Really good. Really good. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.